Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Cassia and I spoke to Kieran Millwood Hargrave, who is a children's novelist and winner of both the Waterstones Children's Book of the Year Award and the British Book Award for uh, children's category. In stark contrast to the last episode when we were in a very fancy new office, uh, this time we were in an um, artist studio at the bottom of Kieran's um, back garden, which was very good fun. Uh, she spoke to us very candidly about um, her finances and how she organises them with the very sort of irregular flow of, of money that uh, writing gives you. Uh, she also spoke to us about the value of her writer's course, which she did, um, uh, and that's how she began working on her, her novels. And she was also incredibly um, open about the difficulties she's had with her mental health and how writing has really helped her with those issues. She was really great. Um, I found, I think Cassid as well, it was genuinely quite inspiring to see her and the sort of creative life that she's built up in Oxford. Yeah, writer's um, crush. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and we really hope you enjoy this as much as we enjoyed our day trip to go and see her. Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. Cassia and I are here with Kieran Millwood Hargrave, um, the winner of the Waterstones Children's Book of the Year Award this year, and also the British Book Awards Children's Book of the Year, also for 2017. We're here uh, in the studio at the end of her garden in Oxford, uh, also with Cass- Cassia's dog Luna, who you, you may hear uh, marauding in the background. Um, uh, yeah, and we're really excited to be, to be talking to Kieran, who's someone we wanted to have on the show for a while. The first question we wanted to ask was, what is it that um, made you want to write? It was probably reading. That's a very stereotypical answer, I know, but I sort of grew up um, as an avid reader and didn't start writing until about five years ago. And just one day sat down, wrote a poem, and it was as simple as that. I suddenly wanted to to read as much contemporary poetry as possible, to write as much as possible. Um, Within a year, I had my first collection published and it's sort of been non-stop from then. And can you tell us a bit about the the role that this Creative Writing Masters um, played in your development uh, as a novelist and so forth? Yes, so I went onto the course in 2012, so I'd been writing um, for about six months um, before then, and I the reason I chose Oxford in particular was that they make you focus on three disciplines. You do poetry, prose and drama. So whilst I was coming as a poet, I knew that I was also going to be challenged and going to be writing drama and fiction as well. Um, Thank goodness, because I would never have made a living as a poet. So it's very good that they got you to write write in all these different disciplines. And how did the the course actually work, like the mechanics of it and and so forth? It was a one-year programme, right? It was two years part-time and it's quite unique in that it's structured over a series of four-day long retreats. Um, So what this did, first and foremost, was attract a really diverse international group of people. Um, Because it was part-time, it was slightly cheaper, spread out over two years, and because it wasn't so time-intensive, it meant you got doctors coming, we had professors from Afghanistan, and it really um, enriched um, sort of the, the way the types of writing we were exposed to um, and was really um, exciting in in that regard. And you were saying just just off air that it was very oversubscribed how what was the selection procedure for getting on that because you you were saying you'd studied at Cambridge before. Yes I did my undergrad at Cambridge 
I took a year and did a few different things trying to work out what I wanted to do and then applied to this creative writing course. I applied to quite a few and it was similar with all of them. You sent in an application with your um, degree and your um, writing sample in whatever discipline you're applying for. In terms of Oxford, they ask for writing in one discipline, even though they teach all three. And then if you were successful getting past that first post, you had an interview. So I came up to Oxford um, for the interview and then a couple of weeks later found out that I'd been successful. And what's your view, you know, you've, you've obviously had this great success following this on creative writing as a taught discipline in general. Obviously there's a debate and a conversation that goes on about that. I think really it's each their own, what will work for one writer won't work for another. I always say when I go in schools and people ask me, do I need to go to university and do a creative writing course? The answer is absolutely not. The most important thing if you want to be a writer is to read as widely as possible, um, both within your genre and out of it. And I would say what a writing course does provide you with is a ready-made community. Um, That's really the main benefit that I got from it. Also, obviously, Oxford in particular got me writing in discipline I wouldn't have otherwise thought to write in fiction. So it's been invaluable in that sense. But really, the main things are it validates you as a writer. Um, So it gives you permission to call yourself a writer. You learn a bit about how the industry works. And also it gives you that community. Could you talk a bit about that community and that peer group? I was reading this piece about how you used to go to a pub in Oxford with people from your course. And they've now all had novels seen through the publication. Yes, well it's slight serendipity. We were around the same age, Uh, we shared similar reading and writing interests and there were three of us, um, Sarvat Haseen and Daisy Johnson and I used to um, write in the Rusty pub every afternoon. We all moved to Oxford which gave us that time and um, we were supported to sort of be writing across those two years. We all wrote our first novels in that pub we all got agents the same year and we all our first books all came out last year. So it's been really nice to do it with them. Sure. And where within Oxford as well, you know, I, I had experience studying here, so did Cassia. Um, you know, not necessarily the most forward looking institution always. How how did the creative writing course kind of fit into the firmament of the university? Yeah. I think they sometimes um, felt slightly outside. Um, Its immense popularity means that it has to be taken seriously. It's um, the most oversubscribed master's course um, in Oxford. And we did quite a lot to integrate within the community. I was president of the Oxford University Poetry Society, which is obviously a more mainstream sort of Oxford institution. Um, and we did lots of open mics that kind of encouraged the wider student body in. I think any creative writing course is going to have a struggle being um, taken seriously, especially within such an academic setting, but hopefully the success of its alumni is kind of proving its worth. I love what you say about um, giving yourself permission to call yourself a writer. It's such an interesting thing and something that so many people um, uh, struggle with. But I think what's also... um, one of the things we like to talk about on Always Take Notes are the the practicalities. You mentioned getting an agent. Can you talk us through both your own experiences of getting an agent? Was it something that the course facilitated for you or did that happen organically? Don't do what I did. Uh, So I will share my experience first. (laughs) Um, So the first thing I did was uh, I wrote three chapters of this children's book off the back of a, a assignment that we were set as part of one of our first year Um, sort of courses you had to write a page in a genre you'd never written in before so I wrote a page about a girl running away 
Um, I thought, oh, there's a story in this. I started writing it, wrote three chapters, and then sent it to an agent. Don't do that. You're meant to finish the novel first. The agent wrote back and said, oh, I'd love to read the rest of it. I said, give me time to finesse it. I wrote it in about three months, um, which was very stressful. (laughs) Sent it back. They said, this needs work, but we're willing to work with it on you. We're willing to work on it with you. And uh, we sort of took it from there, developed a bit of a relationship. But after about two months of working on it, about two drafts, they still offered me representation. Mm. Now, now I know an agent will never work with you on your book unless they're going to offer you representation. They're very busy people. They're not going to waste their time. I didn't know that at the time, so I took my three chapters and my full novel at that stage, sent it out to a wider mm. net of agents. And that's how I found my agent, Helly Ogden. So I didn't actually end up working with the agent who um, is an excellent um, very reputable agent but I didn't actually end up working with them in the end what you should do is finish your novel put it in a drawer um, give it another reread in a couple of a couple of months if you can wait that long um, and then the Rice and Artist yearbook is how I went about it I followed their guidelines um, work, worked and reworked my synopsis synopsis is very important um, for an agent um, I've since learned all for my agent personally um, and so go about it the right way, otherwise it's very stressful, which it already is, but it make your life a bit harder. Did your peers have similar experiences, or did they kind of learn from, from your mistakes? So a better case study would probably be Daisy Johnson, who I've already uh, mentioned, and she wrote Fen, which is um, published by Jonathan Cape, just won the Edge Hill Award. And what she did was a bit of her writing was um, excerpted in the pamphlet that the Oxford University... Um, sends out to a variety of agents before the showcase and they actually contacted her off the back of that and she worked with her agent to kind of finish her collection of short stories so that's one of the other doors that doing a creative writing course can offer you Um, it is still unusual um, and you can still go about it um, the traditional way that's not an obstacle that you don't have to do a creative writing course to get noticed obviously um, when you you, you had a slightly fraught beginning of relationship with your agent. Have you found the dynamics of working with the agent since then um, easier? I mean, it's quite an, um, an intense business, but also personal relationship. How do you find it and how do you negotiate it? Well, it is definitely a bit like a marriage, I think, and you're hoping to be in it <laughs> as long as possible as well. Um, with my agent, she's very young, very energetic, very hands-on editorially. As soon as I met her, I felt very comfortable Uh, which I didn't necessarily feel as comfortable with the first agent I was working with, so it was useful to have Mm. that and to walk into the meeting with Heli and feel instantly, oh, this is someone I could talk to and be very honest with and who I feel would be very honest with me. She's been very brutal about certain aspects of what I should be working on. She's got a perfect kind of mix of literary and commercial-mindedness, which is very important to my writing. Whilst I want it to sort of treat it as art, I also want a career, I want to be making money. So that's been a very useful... I think it's useful to go in with ideas of what you want your career to look like. Yeah. If you're happy to have a full-time job and not be making a living off your writing, um, then you can sort of go for someone who is not so commercially minded. If you know that you want this to be your full-time job, you maybe should go for someone who has commercial writers on their list. Looking at the list, I think, is very important. Well, sort of on the commercial theme... How was it taking um, your book sort of out to the market and, and getting an actual publishing deal? 
Um, what did that process look like for you? Uh, for me, it was quite fraught again. So we did a couple of redrafts um, and we sent it out. Heli did a beautiful job of making the submission stand out. Um, I think that's important to have that relationship with your agent where you can talk to them about how you want to be presented to a publisher. And it's not just sound of something they do. I wanted to know about my rejections as well as my acceptances. Mm-hmm. Uh, we sent out to 20 um, publishers initially, 18 rejected over a period of about two weeks, which was an intense Brutal. two weeks. And I actually started writing my second book because mm-hmm. I thought this isn't going to get a publisher. So I wrote my second book in those two weeks. And then I had two offers on the table, uh, one of which was Chicken House. Uh, had the meetings, met Barry Cunningham, who published J.K. Rowling, at the Savile Club and was just completely wooed and <laughs> completely trusted him um, when he said, you know, this book needs a lot of work, which it did. We halved it in the editorial process, uh, but I think we can build a career for you, and they have. I'm, I'm stunned that not only did you get a, a, a deal so quickly, but you also managed to sort of write the second book so quickly. That must have been an, an incredibly... Um, Uh, intense couple of weeks it was panic driven is Mm. probably the right word and the first draft was terrible the first draft of anything is often terrible and that is one of the main things that no one tells you is that it doesn't come out like a published book it it never will first draft so it was a very short first draft it was about 40,000 words but I was writing like someone possessed I just I knew I wanted this now and I had it within my grasp Mm. and if this wasn't going to be the book I was determined that this one new one that I was working on was going to be the book. And is it right that when you got a deal, it was actually a two-book deal rather than uh, a uh, rather than a single book deal initially? Yes. So I got two-book deal both in America. My American deal actually came through first because Janklin and Nesbitt are um, they have a big office in New York, represent a lot of big rice. They're more boutique in London. So my offer from Knopf actually came or Knopf actually came through first. Um, and I got a two-bit deal from them, and then the two-bit deal from Chicken House came through. So was it? So not is like a, is part of a big publishing company in the states, but Chicken yes. House is an independent. Is that right? They are associated with Scholastic. Scholastic do a lot of their distribution. Scholastic is the biggest children's book publisher in the states, and they're a bit um, dismayed when they found out I already had a publisher in the states because they like to publish um, at the same time and so on. But they sort of have the distribution heft of Scholastic behind them whilst having this very personal small team about seven people in a Georgian house in Somerset it's a complete dream Um, and it's all very driven um, equally by Barry's vision and the other editorial director Rachel Hickman it's very design-led very editorial-led it's it's a really unique publisher and when you got this when the deal came through did you feel pressure from that I mean you the classics were second difficult second album syndrome but I suppose you'd you'd already written the second book had you how did how did that work I'd had second album syndrome with the third book which is now um into deep editorial so I had a few false starts on that but as you say I'd already written the second book so whilst I had to do a lot of rewriting the story was there the character was there most of the hard work was done and publishing works so far ahead of schedule that book was already copy edited by the time Girl of Inca started having any measure of success so it was nice to kind of not have that pressure and actually um, Island at the End of Everything launched um, a week after Girl of Inca won the Bookseller Award, the British Book Award so it was all sort of a very frantic couple of weeks but that pressure didn't come in 
which was nice. When you won those awards, did you feel, how did, did there was an element of pressure or expectation that they brought as well? What was the emotional experience of, of winning the awards, or was it just sheer delight? It was actually really pure delight because I genuinely had no expectation of winning. With the Waterstones Award, um, the the shortlist was incredibly strong. It was an incredibly strong year for middle grade in particular last year. Um, so I won the category award, sort of cried on stage. And then um, the overall award was announced, cried some more and genuinely hadn't planned what I was going to say. Forgot to thank Waterstones, forgot to thank my agents. Um, but it was, I look back on that as a real, really joy-filled night because I had no expectation and I went in, I wasn't stressed. I just sort of was looking forward to meeting a lot of amazing authors, which I did. Met Nicola Yoon, who was over from the States for the ceremony and so on. So it was just a really joy-filled night. And then the bookseller, the British Book Awards, was I was on a shortlist with David Walliams and Tom Fletcher and J.K. Rowling and I thought, well this isn't going to happen so just got very drunk with chicken house and then they announced my name so that was equally uh, fun yes and I also uh, saw that you've spoken or written very candidly about your mental health and how that's yes. had, a, had an interface with your writing which clearly I think very brave and very commendable to do that could you talk a bit about how those those two factors of your life have interplayed yes so I start so I was very I was clinically depressed um, at Cambridge and doing a degree and having to read I couldn't read and it wasn't ideal so as soon as that started to lift um, I read started reading again as much as possible it was something that I'd really missed and that's when the writing um, started coming to kind of concurrently and just having something to focus on and having that sense that you've you've achieved something so um, one of my manifestations of my depression was that I spent a lot of time in bed I just didn't kind of I was in the semi-comatose state but if I'd written a poem, I'd achieve something for the day. And it's just little building blocks, giving myself little goals um, to aspire to and gradually realising I had a collection, which meant I had to get up and I had to find a publisher for that collection. And just sort of giving myself these little milestones um, and sort of increments to aim towards was was really helpful. And and I think one of the dangers of depression is it, it makes you feel like you're a waste of time, you're a waste of space, um, um, your life is a waste and I could see that these words on a page that was evidence I existed that I'd created something and I think that that was very valuable um, to me and I think it's very important to talk about it now I'm in a position I'm, I feel strong enough to talk about it um, not that being depressed is weakness but um, I feel that I, I can verbalise those experiences I'm not in them anymore and I think that's important because a lot of people um, especially creative people struggle with anxiety with depression with lack of confidence Um, not every day is easy but I do think it's good to share and not feel alone in those experiences I was just going to ask the follow-up do you see a a connection between uh, mental health issues and creativity is that I mean that's obviously another area that people there's a discussion and debate about about that one I do think there is, um, and there's probably very able articles and PhDs and so on made on those. But from my personal experiences, um, also going, being in the writing profession is maybe not the best thing for someone with anxiety. There's a lot of waiting. There's no measurable, you know, you can win an award, but there'll still be people who hate your book. There's no sort of, it's all very subjective. And there's no, um, I actually was determined to have a very, 
um, measurable um, career, as in of success, measurable success in my career. So I wanted to be a lawyer um, and maybe, you know, go up through the ranks and, and to have those signifiers. And you just don't have that um, when you're a writer. So it, it's maybe not so um, so useful. But I think the main thing that people who have uh, mental illness and who have creativity share is enormous empathy um, I think that emotion carries a real weight to it and is sometimes very hard to struggle under, but that's also what makes you a good writer. Another thing that um, you, you would have as a, as a lawyer um, but don't have as a writer is sort of that stable um, monthly paycheck. Yes. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you uh, work your finances and the, the messiness of, financial, um, of your kind of financial dealings as a writer? Yes, so I am a naturally um, a spender. Um, in times of in times of plenty, I spend. In times of no, not plenty, I feed my cat and no one else. But um, that's not the best way to be a writer, as you say. It's it is a messy financial challenge, and so you get an advance. Um, I'm sure most of your listeners will know how this works, but you get an advance when you sign a contract. Um, that kind of gets meted out to you in thirds, um, once when you, uh, when you sign, and then when you deliver your manuscript, then when it's published. So you know you've got that amount of money coming in, and it all starts to get a bit more complicated when royalties come in. So you have to pay off your advance with your royalties, mm-hmm. which when you're working in 50p increments per book um, yeah. can take a while, uh, which is the general sort of standard um, measure. And then... Um, you get, I personally, Chicken House pay me twice a year and not pay me twice a year, once in April, once in September. I'm not sure if that's standard. So I'm, I'm coming up for my royalty check, <laughs> ready with my ASOS basket. Um, <laughs> but it, I am having to grow up. Um, I'm having to be less of a student about it. I've got um, a mortgage. I've got um, a husband who's an artist and is very good at saving. So mm. I'm sort of um, but, you know, neither of us have a stable income. We have a cat to support. And so it's, it is important to be grown up about these things. And, you know, when you get this chunk of money at the beginning, not to be like, great, I'm, I'm rich, because that's going to have to last you across a two-year period. Some, in some cases, with my American money, it's still coming in three years, four years after I signed that deal. So it's, it's a long process, but it's doable. Um, I was very lucky in that um, Tom, my husband, was already a successful artist. Mm. Um, he did give me some support. I also had savings um, from when I worked in that year that I took between Cambridge and Oxford. Um, but that holds a lot of very talented writers back that they just don't have. Um, the time is money, and you know you need time to write. And I was lucky to be writing full time whilst I was doing my Oxford course. So that was an enormous help and one that I don't take for granted. It was, it really has probably set me two years ahead of where I would have otherwise been. I think probably you also have an advantage in that you, because you'd already done a lot of the work for getting your second book published, you weren't sort of under that pressure of earning out the advance on the first book and, you know, the worry about getting the second book deal. Have you, have you found that that's had effects for your third book or have you managed to sort of ride it out and, and kind of got used to the the, the cash flow and the, the biannual and paychecks and all the rest of it? Well, getting Waterstone support has in blunt terms made it, made my financial situation stable because I know 
you know, they're buying in a certain amount of the book, they're selling a certain amount of the book. My sales have been very steady, mm. um, apart from the peaks when it was book of the month and then the peak when it won um, the Waterstones Children's Book Award. Um, so they were sort of crazy months where it would sell um, more than it sells in sort of two months in a week. Um, but otherwise, it's been a very stable... Um, the children's book market is a very buoyant market. Mm. Um, and now you've got two books. I've got two books out, so you know the more books you have out the more royalties you have coming in and it's just about building that momentum um yeah. so i signed my another two book deal with chicken house uh last year and so i'm working my third at the moment i've got that's coming out in may next year i've got my fourth coming out the year after that so i'm just really trying to keep the momentum up trying to get to a place where i could maybe have a couple of years to kind of get off the treadmill um, but I'm under no illusion that I need to, to sort of store some of that um, that that creative credit, if you like, and kind of get ahead with those books in order to be able to have that time later. It's um, it's so wonderful to hear you talk about it in terms of career and and you know having that kind of that plan. How do you um, how do you use that focus that you have for what you want your career to look like to sort of run your day to day life and your conversations and you know not obsessively checking sales figures and all that kind of stuff (laughs) what is your what does it look like I am very bad I look at all my reviews uh, my Goodreads reviews uh, my Amazon reviews and so you know you can easily spend a whole day falling into that hole and I'm learning all the time I've been doing this nearly two years now and I'm improving my my working practices now my my day is just taken up a lot more by being by the professional aspect of being a writer professional um part of it is much more dull it's admin and things like that there's also school visits that are very much a part of a children's book writer's um, income as well as your enjoyment Um, actually meeting your readers is incredibly exciting and unique to being a children's writer in that way Um, children are very interested in in the in the work and and you in a different way to adults you never get a question that's sort of more about the questioner than than you they're always about the work which I really enjoy but it all takes away from writing and so I do have my diary planned you know into November next year and sort of things the more successful you get the further in advance you're working so that's kind of helpful in a way so whilst you are getting booked up faster you also know what your year looks like um, and that's very helpful so I can plan around that Chicken House are great they do, they're the editorial lead Knopf don't really do editorial with me so um, Chicken House kind of take that lead and they work around my schedule um, as well as making my schedule and in terms of um, events being kind of an extra revenue stream is that something that you expected before the book was published and have you had any help in sort of um, setting a day rate or, and have you had pushback from schools sort of saying well you know maybe you could just come and talk for free Yes, and you know we all understand budgets are tight and getting tighter. We all understand that literacy is very important and you feel you have a responsibility as a writer to kind of feed into that and to be encouraging of that and supportive. But you know also you have to, you're, you're a professional and you have to be paid for your services. I aim to be flexible, um, but I do always expect to be paid something. And um, I'm a patron of reading for a great school in Abingdon, just down the road from me in Oxford. And it wasn't something that I expected uh, to be such an important revenue stream as well as confidence stream um, when I came into this career. But it's it's a really valuable to me as a writer, as well as I think to schools sort of adding that content. 
we've talked about how your um, your children's novels fit into this commercial landscape, but you you can sit continued with with poetry and they, and also with playwriting perhaps don't have as as obvious a commercial fit. Where where do they fit into your creative practice, and do you see yourself carrying on with with those other disciplines going forward? So I've written one play, and that was produced in two thousand and fourteen by a director, Max Barton. Um, it was a wonderful experience. Uh, playwriting is not something that comes naturally to me. I um, I am a novelist and a poet first and foremost. That play, Boat, actually grew out of my third poetry collection, Splitfish, which is about my experiences of sexual assault and depression. And a director approached me and said, I'd like you to write a play about this. So we made it, he sort of dramaturged me into a playwright. Um, I would like to try again, but it would have to be a very sort of a collaborative process because it's as I say not something that comes naturally to me poetry is my first love and um, and where I still feel very much at home when I do eventually get time to sit down and write I've got a poetry collection coming out with Bloomsbury uh, in collaboration with my husband Tom he's done a graphic novel version of Orpheus's journey through the underworld and I've done Eurydice's sort of answering back to her to the silences that the the myth kind of gives her so I'm constantly looking for new ways to grow my poetry practice I'm judging the Costa Poetry Book Award this year with Mona Arshi which um, is an incredible honour and really has opened my eyes to to poetry because you have to be reading this stuff and there's you know I read constantly but you're still never going to really keep up and it's been really nice to have that permission to come back to poetry in a meaningful way and really engage with it and yeah I'm all ready to start my next poetry project I've got sort of a deadline in mind a theme in mind so I am going to start writing as soon as the edits are in for book three I mean I find it really interesting that I often think that what forms people do is a function of the age that they're in so you know if you were an ambitious writer in the early 19th century you probably would be writing poetry and there was there was money in it um but it's it I find it interesting that you know you're you're continuing with that even though the the sort of the more lucrative work is elsewhere, right? Yes, uh, for, it is always about enjoyment as well and, and what feeds you as a person. And I think that, you know, this is a vocation as well as a, a job. It's it's a calling in some ways. It's become more of a calling for me. Um, as, as sort of I've got into it, I now can't imagine doing anything else. And I, I have to write to be happy. It's like a shark has to keep swimming. It's very important for my mental health as well. And so I... You know, poetry um, is a very important part of the way I see the world, the way I process things, um, the way I explore narratives. And there are some narratives that are just more suited to poetry than they are to novels. So I am working on a, an adult book as well, but, you know, the, the character finds the form for me and and that's really how I see my poetry. It is character-led still, um, so I have a novelist's approach to it in that respect. But it is very much, um, you know, what what that character needs um, from me in order to write it. And also, we're here uh, at the moment in the studio at the end of your garden with your your husband's wonderful paintings around us. And you you mentioned this collaboration that you're doing with him. Do you see that your your relationship is very much a collaborative, a, a creative as well as a romantic partnership? Hugely, I wouldn't have started writing if I hadn't met Tom. Uh, we met in my first year at Cambridge, which was not what I wanted for my first year to find my life partner. But um, he bought me that year's Ted Hughes shortlist. Um, oh, was it T.S. Eliot Award shortlist? And it it just inspired me because I'd been reading T.S. Eliot, I'd been reading Auden, but I hadn't been reading contemporary poetry in a meaningful way. 
And it, it was an amazing year. It had Pascal Petit and Robin Robertson, who is one of my favourite poets now. And it just opened my eyes. So he then encouraged me in that. I saw he was making a living in that. He was relatively secure, which was very important to me as a reco- recovering depressive. I wanted something relatively secure. <laughs> Writing is not that, but he offered that security and that sort of strength and support that meant that I had the courage to sort of start writing my own stuff. Um, I'm very good with rejection, uh, which is a huge part of writing and poetry in particular that is very oversubscribed um, and there is no money. And so I really did start writing for the love and as a challenge to myself and to see if I had something to say. I love what you said about um, letting the character find the form. But obviously um, a lot of your, your two most successful novels so far have been about, um, have been for children. How is it that you um, allow your narrative to find an audience or how do you um, know which audience you're going to be speaking to? And is that also influenced by the form? So it was very, it's very revealing that my first novel I didn't know who I was writing it for when I started writing. My main influences for it were The Firework Maker's Daughter by Philip Pullman, a lovely, neat, middle-grade book, and 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Not a neat (laughs) middle-grade book, but sort of magical realism and adventure was Mm. my sort of brief that I gave myself. And then it just turned out that my main character was a 13-year-old girl, Um, I wasn't particularly interested in writing sex, I wasn't particularly interested in writing swearing. Uh, It's quite a violent book, it's quite dark, um, which it's actually, some people has turned some people off it, but I think kids love a bit of, love Mm. a bit of violence, you only have to look at Roald Dahl's enduring appeal. And so it wasn't until I actually came to Chicken House, when I first submitted it to agents, I described it as a YA crossover magical realist adventure story. <laughs> and the first thing <laughs> Heli said when I went to meet us, we need to work on your pitch. And so we worked a little with her as to who it was for. We thought maybe skewing towards YA. Chicken House said, this is the most perfect middle grade adventure. But it, you've, I've seen in my readers that it goes from sort of precocious eight year olds up to adults uh, when it was book of the month and just being put on. Um, on tills, adults were picking up because the cover is very beautiful and I think um, that that has a lot to do with its appeal and got people into reading it. So the short answer was I didn't know who I was writing the first book for and that caused me a lot of editorial headaches. The second book, I was very clear, this is a middle grade book, um, that's who the voice was, That's the, the girl was an 11 year old girl, um, and it was the, her voice was very clear to me. Again there was going to be no sex in the story so it's a children's book and that really is the the difference to me I'm now writing an adult book and it's very much about obsession and sort of um seduction and so that is obviously um, more appropriate for adults than children but I don't I just see stories as stories and I think that more adults should be reading children's books I think that is happening mm. with Frances Harding winning the cost of the lie tree and I think more adults are discovering the joys of children's books um but yeah stories are stories really i think that's um something that both you have just said and also uh, i believe was said when you won the award is um the joy of, of storytelling that can be so clear 
in books for children and sometimes there's um, a reaction against that in adult fiction is that something that you've struggled with when you're writing your your your, your book for adults so I do notice that um, I'm an avid reader of fiction for all ages and I do notice that adult books don't tend to get to the point quite as quickly so I'm actually trying to obfuscate my point is quite an interesting <laughs> experience and when I wrote I wrote the first thousand words and shared it with um, Saravat, Daisy and Tom and sort of said what, what do you think of this and, and Daisy was like well you get, you get to it very quickly like your, all your major players are on the page in the first thousand words and that doesn't need to happen and that's actually really nice to indulge a bit and to luxuriate in, in those finer details and that sort of minute, minutiae of the setup. I love very lyrical writers like, um, like Gabriel Garcia Marquez, obviously, and John McGregor. And uh, I do love sort of the more um, experimental, stylistic, poetic uh, writing. And so I'm really reveling in bringing that um, into my adult book and not getting to the point so quickly. Um, quick sort of explain this question. What, what does middle grade mean in terms of children's fiction? So it's an American term and some people in the UK hate it but it's easy for authors to get their head around. It tends to be 8 to 12, 9 to 12, that kind of uh, when they're crossing from um, primary to secondary. They're not young children anymore, but they're not teenagers, so it's, it tends to go sort of um, preschool and then um, mi- middle grade and then teen and then YA, then new adult and so on. But really, it's all marketing, it's all sales, it's all trying to get your book into the hands of the people who might enjoy it most but I do there's an overemphasis on classification um, and it does um, it does interfere with people's pleasure I think in finding the stories that truly speak to them um, I read uh, a lot of I read Gabriel Garcia Marquez I'm talking about him a lot because he's my favourite um, I read him when I was 14 didn't get most of it but loved the sort of lushness of the language and and have reread uh, 100 Years Solitude multiple times since and got something new each time. So, you know, I think that it's important not to let classification get in the way of getting stories into readers' hands. And could you talk a bit about your, your routine, actually, with writing itself? You'd mentioned earlier, you know, the, the challenges of, of doing the admin and fitting that round. But actually, in terms of your creative routine, times of days, methods of writing, how does that, how do you work that one? So one of my favourite poets, Lucy Brock Broido, says that there are two types of writers, there are oxen and there are cats, and the oxen get up, they plough the field, nine to five, um, cats sleep most of the time, and then they sort of attack the work, and that is who I am. And that's very well facilitated by having deadlines, by having contracts that I can work to. Some weeks I won't write a word, I'll be thinking, but I won't write a word, I'll be doing school visits, I'll be um, seeing friends and family, Um, I'm a very social person, and... When I'm in the grip of a deadline, I don't see anyone. I lock myself in my um, office and allow myself to be obsessed, to be consumed by my book. Um, and that is the way that I work. It's not the best way to work, I would argue. I think structure and routine um, is very important. And if you can work like that, that is the better way to work because it's more predictable and you you sort of you have the that glow of achievement every day. I'm I can't work like that. Um, I need a deadline, I need to be slightly up against it. Um, I don't believe in inspiration sort of being this mythical thing, but um, I do believe in sort of letting ideas ferment and uh, 
thinking time is as important as writing time to me. And we spoke just off air before we started recording about this this division in novelists between those who plot or kind of work the shape of the whole thing beforehand. Um, I've read that William Boyd takes that approach, and those who who just kind of jump in and, and get going. Um, other Ian Rankin was the one mentioned in the piece I was talking about. Which which of those two poles do you do you tend towards? Um, I'm a complete pantser, so they call them plotters or pantsers. Um, I don't. Um, I have sort of a, a mission statement, if you like, an emotional heart um, that I that I want to sort of address or tackle in my book. Um, I know my characters because I've been thinking about them, I've been talking to them in my head, but I don't actually sit down and write a plan at all. Um, I hate doing synopses ahead of the book actually being finished, which is a necessity, and often my synopses that I deliver to my publisher will then be completely different when I actually get the book to them. Um, but I completely just follow my characters, trust my characters. It's easy, not easy, it's the best way of working actually for the kinds of book I write because their journey, their quest narratives, you know, they're going here, they're going from one place to another and they're sometimes coming back, sometimes not. And so that's quite a good way of working because you're discovering with your character, you're sort of mapping the territory that they're covering. Um, with my adult book it's a lot more stationary we're kind of moving around one place so I am writing myself a synopsis for that um, just to kind of get my head around the kind of those finer details that are happening so do you type or do you write longhand? I type I hold my pen very strangely and I actually when I was doing my 11 plus I had to wear a neck brace to keep my shoulder down which was humiliating <laughs> Um, to keep my shoulder down because it sort of rises if I hold a pen for too long. And even when I'm signing books, um, sort of my, my hand and my shoulder ache for, for hours afterwards. So I, I love my laptop. It goes everywhere. And th- this is going back actually to, to something we spoke about earlier that's just come across my mind. Um, you've obviously had this huge success coming out of the creative writing course. Um, and other people of your peers always have as well. I mean, I was just, I suppose, thinking um, the, that Gore Vidal quote that, or is it Gore Vidal, envy is the right of sin. Do you, do you, have you experienced that from, from other people? Or? I truly, I think it's one of my greatest attributes, I don't have many, is that I do not get jealous of what other people have. I am jealous of people's talent, um, but also hugely glad they have it because it means I can read it. I derive far more pleasure from reading my friends' books than I do envy. Um, and, and that's really stood me in good stead because um, jealousy can be such a cor- corrosive emotion and so detrimental to creativity when you've got that voice in your head saying, oh, look what they've got, look what they did. Um, I really try to just keep my eye on the ball and to use my own work as the measure against which... I measure my work going forward because I can't write like anyone else, um, no matter how much I might um, want to, so I might as well not want to. (laughs) Um, And yeah, I I don't genuinely do not get envious. I I derive a great deal of joy from other people's successes and that's a really um, useful trait, I think. We uh, were speaking, perhaps rather ungenerously, on the bus on the way up about... um, how crowded the uh, the children's book scene has become with um, with you know celebrities and, and you know sort of big names has that affected you and, and do you have any thoughts on on that? 
I mean, Walliams just is the chart. Uh, yesterday at the <laughs> at the I was at the children's conference, uh, bookseller children's conference, and they did the top five, and it was all Walliams. And you know, that's just he's. I I personally think his books are great, and they're getting kids reading, and um, I think that that's very positive. I think when the books aren't great, it can be quite galling. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think they are getting book deals um, and shelf space other than from retailers where you buy the shelf space they're not getting that above good writers Um, and you know if the book's not good kids aren't going to enjoy it they're not going to tell their parents to go and buy another one so and a lot of these celebrity writers they're quite good writers they're maybe not the best writers in the world um, but you know they, they are telling good stories obviously it would be great if a few more people got opportunities but I don't think people are missing out on opportunities mm. because of celebrity writers I think they're very different markets no one expects to sell like Walliams that's just mm. not you know we kind of yesterday they said you know if we cut Walliams out and that's kind of that's how publishers actually measure success my original sales target was 5,000 for the first period um, for Chicken House so you know they don't have that expectation that you need to be mm. selling hundreds of thousands that makes your job easier in, in some ways that you're just never in going some to quite <laughs> yes you just kind of discount of the, it. Of the, the, the children's fiction world exactly and and you know Dave Walliams Tom Fletcher there are some great there are some great celebrity children's authors and uh, people who are great advocates for children's literature as well so I kind of I suppose it's easy because my book has had that commercial success so maybe I'm slightly kinder about it and don't have such a like I don't really I don't have a chip on my shoulder about it mm-hmm. um, and, but I don't um, sort of poop our people who do like they have their own reasons but that's my personal take on it we hope you enjoyed that now a quick update from our lives Simon what have you been up to? Um, I'm still reeling from Cassia's uh, criticism of my personal organisation tactics in the last episode um, so he's I'm now gonna... got a whiteboard uh, yeah. I'm, I'm outing him as <laughs> Yeah, I'd like to um, yeah just come clean about being a whiteboard owner. That's transformed my life. Um, this week I've been tragic. Uh, <laughs> um, We're not cutting this. This is staying in. Um, I've been smarting this week from Cassia's constant, constant criticism and endless microaggressions. Um, I've been. Um, starting the fact-checking process on my book, uh, which has involved uh, experimenting with Scrivener, uh, the the uh, special for writers word processor, uh, and obviously a lot of whiteboard time as well. Um, Cassia, what about you? I, I I was really surprised that you're, you're um, uh, working with Scrivener. I tried it and failed miserably, but I'll be really interested to see how you get on with it. You have to, have to let me know. Uh, what have I been doing? I've mostly been um, panic writing um, a chapter... Of, uh, of my book. I hope my I hope now hope the publishers and my agent aren't listening to this. Don't worry, this goes out post-deadline. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so I've been panic writing um, a chapter and I think one of the reasons why it took me so long to get to it was because the subject matter is quite dark and depressing. Uh, anyway, um, enough, enough about that. <laughs> um, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Cassie St. Clair. And me, Simon Aikham. Our producers are Olivia Craylin, Ed Kiernan and Liz Davies. We have music by Jess Danheiser. Zara Hankier handles our social media and our graphic design is by James Edgar. 
We're on all manner of social media. You can find us on Facebook and on Instagram. Just search Always Take Notes. Our Twitter handle is Take Notes Always, and our website is alwaystakenotes.com. And if you've enjoyed the show, please do leave a review on iTunes.